two-week mini-series in Isaiah chapter 40. The theme of this chapter is the greatness of God. And it is fitting for us to turn to this theme at a time like this. Someone made the observation in the early days of this crisis that not all of the shelves at the grocery store or not all of the aisles in the grocery stores were empty. I think we all know that the toilet paper was all gone, and also if you went to the meat department, much of that had been cleared out, and many of the other basic necessities had been uh, sort of scooped up in the early days of this in a bit of panic buying. The exception was the candy aisle. Now, there's been time to adjust and load up on junk food. I mean, I know my house is well-stocked with chips and other essentials. But the thing that that revealed is that in a time of crisis, what you look for is something solid, something that can sustain you. And this is what we're doing by turning our attention to the greatness of God. Isaiah chapter 40 was meant to be a source of comfort for God's people who were now living in exile. And we saw that Isaiah's counsel for these exiles last week was not to look inward at themselves, not to look outward at their circumstances, but instead to look upward at their God. The Israelites were living in uncertain times, and they needed a fixed point of reference. They needed to know that there was hope. And so this morning, I want to direct your attention to where it is that we can find hope in the midst of uncertain times. We're going to zoom in on verses 27 to 31 of Isaiah chapter 40. But before I read those verses, I just want to say a word about the importance of hope. Victor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor. He spent time in a couple of different Nazi concentration or death camps, including Auschwitz. He later wrote a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning, where he chronicled the different ways people tried to cope in the midst of that experience. He said the hardest thing to watch was when people simply gave up hope. He said everyone knew the symptoms, everyone feared for the moment that this would happen to them or to someone close to them. Usually it began suddenly one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade ground for inspection. And no entreaties from their friends, no threats or even blows from the guards would have any effect on them. They would just lie there because they had no hope. And he recounts one particularly dramatic example where a man who on the outside had been a well-known composer had a vivid dream that the war was going to end on March 30th. The man was convinced that the dream was a revelation, and so he had great hope. But as the date drew nearer, it became clear that the war would not be over by March 30th. On March 29th, the man developed a high fever. On March 30th, he lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. His loss of hope lowered his body's temperature or his body's resistance to the diseases in the camp. The official report was that the man died of typhus, but in reality, he died when his hope died. So hope is essential to life. We can't live without it, but where do we find hope that is solid and secure? Well, this passage has something to say about that. 
So we're looking at verses 27 to 31 of Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read it for you now. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So here's how we're going to proceed this morning. Let me give you my outline up front. We're going to look at one uncomfortable truth about ourselves, then four comforting truths about God, and then two surprising truths about renewal. So let's begin with the uncomfortable truth about ourselves. And that truth is that we are more likely to forget about God than he is to forget about us. So we ended with verse 27 last week, but I think it's worth looking at that verse again. That verse says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Now, I expect that this would have been a very common sentiment at the time. I mean, the way of life for every single Israelite had changed dramatically. Gone were the days of stability and prosperity. The only reality for them now was uncertainty. And the question they were asking God was, have you forgotten about us? You may have felt that way at times. I mean, you may have experienced a season where it seemed like your prayers just sort of bounced off the ceiling and came back to you as if no one is listening at all. But God does not forget his people. And you can see it even in the way God addresses his people in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Now, the names Jacob and Israel are, in one sense, just synonymous. But I think there's a reason that God addresses them this way beyond just the parallelism. God is reminding his people of his relationship with them. And you might remember the story from the book of Genesis, where Jacob wrestled with God, and at the end of it, God changed his name to Israel. In Genesis 32, 28, it says, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So God is answering their question. God, have you forgotten about us? He's answering them in his form of address. Look, I haven't forgotten about you. I was there at the very beginning. And I'm here right now. See, we may forget about God, but he does not and will not forget about us. Later in the book of Isaiah, we're given this great reminder. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. And then here's God's answer. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? 
Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So God compares himself to a mother who lovingly nursed her child. And there's an indelible bond between a mother and her children. She's not going to forget them. But then God says, look, even if a mother were somehow able to forget the child that she nursed and the child that she bore, I will never forget you. So even the best of earthly relationships can fail. But God's commitment to his children never fails. In fact, God says that he has engraved his people on the palms of his hands. That's an incredible image. And what it actually says is, behold or look. At my hands, it's as if he's holding them out for inspection. This ought to have been a great source of comfort for the Israelites. But how much more should it comfort us as Christians who can look at the nail-scarred hands of Jesus to know the extent of his love for us? God has engraved us on the palms of his hands. He will not forget us. So God doesn't forget us, but we are likely to forget him. This is why Isaiah goes on to say this in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? See, the problem for the Israelites wasn't that they didn't possess enough knowledge about God. It wasn't that they hadn't heard about God's character. The problem for the Israelites was that the moment they encountered a crisis, they forgot everything they knew. Isaiah doesn't tell them some newly discovered truth. Instead, he directs them back to the truth they already know. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing in the midst of this crisis. I mean, it's possible that in the midst of our prosperity that we have forgotten about God. We didn't need to ask God to give us this day our daily bread because our refrigerators and our pantries are stuffed to overflowing. But it's also possible to forget about God in the midst of a trial or a crisis. Now, it's important to stay informed at a time like this, but it's also easy to occupy our minds with what is not ultimately helpful. I mean, I noticed that my own practice or pattern was to reach for the phone or the iPad to read all about the latest developments first thing in the morning. It's actually a terrible way to begin the day. And I've been disciplining myself to at least read a passage of Scripture or to pray before beginning my day, before, before doing any of that. I want to have God's perspective on the world before I hear everyone else's. So the uncomfortable truth about ourselves is that we're forgetful creatures. I want to focus now on four comforting truths about God. And all four of these truths come out of verse 28. The first one is that he's the everlasting God. Therefore, there is no time when he is not. Verse 28 says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. Now, God's eternal nature is something that we can take comfort in. Our perspective is extremely limited. So we talk about this crisis being something that is unprecedented, but that's really only true within our lifetime. 
Back in 2011, the year that we launched Crossridge, we read through a book as a staff team together. The book was called The Trellis and the Vine. It was about making sure that there's a proper structure in place to help the vine, the church, grow in the right direction. And that book ended with a thought experiment. Here's what it said. Imagine that the pandemic swept through your part of the world and that all public assemblies of more than three people were banned by the government for reasons of public health and safety. If you were the pastor, what would you do? So that was back in 2011. I tried to remind the staff this week that, you know, at the time I said, oh yeah, we should really think about this. But we didn't. It seemed like a totally irrelevant question at the time. But it seems pretty relevant now, doesn't it? I'd seen so, I saw someone tweet that excerpt from that book this week, and I had to go back and make sure that that's what it said because the book was written in 2009. I mean, what prompted them to say that? But the sentence before the one I read you said this as we write, the first worrying signs of a swine flu pandemic are making headlines around the world. That, of course, was a reference to the H1N1 outbreak from 2008. More than 12,000 Americans died in that outbreak. And as I looked at that one, that sort of led me down a bit of a rabbit hole. I started doing a little bit of reading on other outbreaks, as I'm sure many of you have done. And I didn't know that there was a flu pandemic in 1968-69 that killed more than a million people worldwide. I didn't know there was an even larger influenza pandemic in 1957-58 to that killed around 2 million people worldwide, including more than 4,000 people in Canada. If you've been reading online at all, I'm sure you've come across lots of references to what was dubbed the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. That virus infected one-third of the world's population and was responsible for upwards of 50 million deaths worldwide. The equivalent today would be 2.5 billion people being infected and 800 million people dying. Now, that was 102 years ago. So there's not even really people we can talk to about who would have been old enough at the time to tell us, you know, what it was like to live through that. And these are just things that have happened really in the last hundred years or so, and we've forgotten about them. So we call it the novel coronavirus or the new coronavirus, but the things that we think of as new aren't new to God. He's the everlasting God. And the scope of history recorded for us in the Bible reveals a world where famines and droughts and plagues and wars were commonplace. And most of us aren't acquainted with those things. But there was no event in the past where God wasn't present. There's nothing coming in the future that he doesn't know about. He's the everlasting God. God stands outside of time. Medieval theologians came up with a helpful picture of what God's relationship to time looks like. They pictured human history as a journey around the base of a mountain. And God sits on top of the mountain and sees all of history happening at once. See, God does not have a past or a future, only an eternal present. 
And the point of sharing that is not to engage in idle speculation about God, but to bring the reminder that God is not surprised by anything that happens in our world or in our lives. And that should bring us comfort when it's coupled with the knowledge of God's absolute goodness. Listen to God's words from Revelation chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then right near the close of the book of Revelation, we read these words from Jesus, almost identical words. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is the everlasting God. He is Lord over the past, over the present, and over the future. Second comforting truth about God is that he's the creator of the ends of the earth. Therefore, there's no place where he is not. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You know, the ancient world was a fearful place for many people. There there was lots of mystery surrounding places that no one had ever been to. They didn't have the means of transportation that we have now. You couldn't just sort of get on an airplane and fly to New York in a couple of hours. Unknown regions and territories often went unexplored for fear of what might be there. And there's an old mariner's chart that was drawn up in 1525, which is now on display in the British Museum in London. It outlines the North American coastline with its adjacent waters. And what makes this map interesting, the reason that it's on display in the British Museum is that the cartographer made some unusual notations on areas in the map that represented regions that had not yet been explored. For example, in some of those territories, he wrote, here be giants, or here be scorpions, or here be dragons, right? In other words, look, these parts are unknown. They're dangerous. Don't go there. Well, eventually, that map came into the possession of Sir John Franklin, a British explorer in the early 1800s, and scratching out all of the fearful notations, he wrote these words across the map, here is God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Everything is his. He inhabits all of it. There's no place where God is not present. The psalmist expressed God's omnipresence with these words, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Look, that ought to be comforting to us regardless of where we are, regardless of how isolated we might feel. The Lord is the creator of the ends of the earth. He inhabits all of it. We're never apart from his presence. A third comforting truth about God is that he doesn't grow tired or weary, therefore he's always at work. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. So we're limited by time and space in ways that God isn't, but we're also limited by other physical limitations. Things like the need for sleep. 
I mean, we basically spend a third of our time on earth sleeping. Even the youngest and fittest among us can only do so much before needing to take a break and needing to take a nap or get some rest. But God never faints. He never gets tired or weary. He doesn't look at our world and think, oh, I'm so overwhelmed, I I, I don't know where to begin. God is at work even in the midst of all this. When the book of Genesis tells us that God rested on the seventh day, it's not telling us that God was so tired that he needed to take a nap. God's rest is described as the rest of satisfaction. He's a laborer looking on what his hands have made and resting in the accomplishment of it. It's not the rest of exhaustion. And both the Old and the New Testament tells us that God is always working. So Psalm 121 assures us, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In the New Testament, Jesus received criticism for healing on the Sabbath. Here's how he responded. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. See, God has not dozed off in the midst of this crisis. He hasn't grown tired or weary. He's always at work accomplishing his purposes. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what God is doing through all of this. As John Piper has said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. And if that's true in our individual lives, how much more is that true in the world at large? And this ties in with the fourth comforting truth about God, which is that his knowledge is unsearchable. Therefore, there's no limit to his wisdom. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now to say that God's understanding is unsearchable really points us in a couple of directions. It's unsearchable in the sense that we can't always discover it. I talked about this a little bit last week, but we don't always know the purpose as to why God does things. We can try to guess and we know some things about God's character from the world that he has made and revealed himself in and from his word that he has specifically revealed himself in. But there's so much that remains a mystery to us. Many of you are familiar with the story of Job in the Old Testament. Job was sort of the sufferer par excellence, right? I mean, he lost everything. The start of the book, he he loses a great deal. And then he begins to experience his own diminishing health. He's beset by a number of afflictions. He's got lots of questions in the midst of all that. Now, you and I know the purpose for Job's suffering. We're let in on the secret at the beginning of the book. But Job doesn't know. And so Job voices all of his complaints, all of his questions to his friends, but they're of no help. And what Job really wants is an audience with God. And God does answer him in two lengthy poetic discourses at the end of the book. But even with that, 
God doesn't tell him the specific reason for his suffering. And yet, when he hears God's word, he comes to a new understanding of God's unsearchable wisdom. And here's what he says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. See, God's wisdom is unsearchable. We get glimpses of it, but so much of it is beyond our comprehension. Second thing we ought to understand about God's understanding being unsearchable is that there's no bottom to God's knowledge. There's no problem that God is puzzled over or can't figure out. He doesn't need to consult Wikipedia or Google. His knowledge is limitless. And so he's able to work out his purposes in ways that we might not know. So I want to close now by looking at two surprising truths about renewal. And the first one is that God shares his strength, but only with those who admit they need it. See, in the midst of this, what we need is we need renewal. We need to renew our strength. So verse 29 says this, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So this God that Isaiah has been talking about, the one who is unmatched in his strength and his wisdom, shares his power with the faint and the one who has no might. This is actually a hard truth for people to accept. I mean, we like to think of ourselves as self-made people. We like to portray ourselves as strong. We don't need the crutch of religion This is why Paul tells us that the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, it's the people who think they've got it all together that have the hardest time with the message of the gospel. This is something you can observe throughout the gospel of Matthew. This incident from Matthew chapter 9 is representative of the way the religious leaders stumbled over the message of the gospel. Matthew 9, it says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And when Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and I've come to call the righteous but not sinners, he doesn't mean that there are two categories of people, those who are healthy and those who are sick or those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous, or those who are sinners, what he means is that the two categories of people are those who acknowledge their sickness and their weakness and those who don't or won't. Acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy is the only proper starting place. Some time ago, I listened to a fascinating interview with Chris Carter, Chris Carter had a Hall of Fame career as a receiver in the NFL. He put up most of his big numbers playing for the Minnesota Vikings. But before he played for the Vikings, he was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles, and he was cut by the Eagles. And he was cut because he had a substance abuse problem. He was addicted to both cocaine and alcohol. And he managed to give up cocaine, but initially he had a very difficult time overcoming his addiction to alcohol. 
And part of the time, part of the reason he had a hard time with that is is because he had a hard time admitting that he was an alcoholic, that he needed help. So the NFL required him to attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And if you know anything about AA meetings, then you know that they begin with the participants introducing themselves. They say something like this, my name is Lee Francois and I'm an alcoholic. When Chris Carter started attending those meetings, he could not bring himself to say that. And so at the beginning of the meeting, when it came time to introduce himself, he would say something like, my name is Chris Carter and the NFL is requiring me to be here. And he never made any progress with his addiction until he came to the place where he could admit his own bankruptcy and say, my name is Chris Carter and I'm an alcoholic. See, God shares his strength, but only with those who admit they need it, only those who acknowledge that their own resources are not enough to handle all the things that come their way. The great reformer Martin Luther said it this way, therefore God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life only to the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to unwise fools. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud saint, no wise or just person can become God's material and God's purpose cannot be fulfilled in him. He remains in his own work and makes a fictitious, pretended, false, and painted saint of himself. That is a hypocrite. See, the starting place to experience renewal is an admission of our own weakness. That we don't have the strength we need, and so we desperately ask God to give it to us. So where do you find strength? Well, you find it in acknowledging your weakness. Listen to the Apostle Paul's own testimony about this. Paul said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. The final thing we see here is that strength comes through waiting. Verse 30 and, verses 30 and 31, I think, are some of the most hope-filled verses in all of Scripture. Here's what they say. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those are powerful verses, but they're actually puzzling to modern ears. See, the dominant message in our time or in our day is believe in yourself, reach for the stars, fulfill your destiny. We're constantly told to look within as if we just have to tap into some sort of hidden resources within ourselves. Isaiah shows us the foolishness of that. He says, even youths shall faint 
Even the young men shall fall exhausted. The strongest among us doesn't have the strength we need. So do more, try harder resolutions can only take us so far. If it's up to us and our potential, we are doomed. But what Isaiah says is that those who wait for the Lord, they shall renew their strength. Now, we have a hard time with waiting. I mean, the series we've been doing in Genesis is, is called Between Promise and Fulfillment. And we've been journeying along with Abraham and Sarah as they're waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he made to them. Now, I don't want to go all spoiler alert here, but there's a fascinating transformation that takes place in the life of Abraham in the midst of all this waiting. God promises, among other things, to give Abraham and Sarah a son. They wait and they wait and they wait, but no son comes. They actually end up waiting for 25 years. That was the gap between promise and fulfillment. They get the promise in chapter 12, and Isaac is finally born in chapter 21. But that's not the end of the story. Chapter 22 then begins like this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait, what? And we're going to get into all the specifics of that later this spring. But the crazy part is Abraham obeys at once. I mean, this promise that he had waited and waited and waited for is fulfilled. And now God says, I want you to take the son that I've promised to you and given to you and take him up and offer him as a sacrifice. So where did Abraham get the strength to do that? Well, he developed that kind of strength in the midst of his waiting. He saw all that God could do. And so as the book of Hebrews tells us, he reasoned in his mind that God could raise the dead if he needed to. Abraham got that strength when he came to the end of his own strength. Now, waiting doesn't mean that we just sort of sit and twiddle our thumbs. Waiting means that we learn to trust God for the things that only God can do. I mean, there are so many things that are simply beyond our control, and I think this crisis has revealed that. There are lots of things that could cause us a great deal of worry and anxiety, lots of things that could keep us awake at night. One of my favorite things to say after a particularly good night's sleep is that I slept like a Calvinist. And what I mean by that is that I slept like a person who believes that God is in control in this world. He's in control of everything, and I don't need to worry about it. The psalmist said it with different words, but he said it like this. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, the confidence that we have in this world is that God is the everlasting Lord. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. 
His understanding is unsearchable, and so we submit ourselves to Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to give you thanks for who you are. We thank you for your great grace. We thank you for the hope that we can have even in the midst of a dark time. Lord, we do not know how long this will last, but we know that you are everlasting. We know that you are present with us wherever we might find ourselves. And so, Lord, in the midst of this, the thing we cling to is not our strength, not our ability to control things, but your greatness and your majesty. God, may we all experience the peace that comes from that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.